you've got your Bible, guess where you can open it? Uh, you think 1 John. That's a good place to stick something, but actually I think we're going to start off sort of going back, back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start there. We're, gonna, we're going to 1 John, but we're going through Genesis. <laughs> Genesis 4, why start all the way back there? <laughs> well, for a really good reason, actually, in um, all of the Apostle John's letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, there's only one time he directly refers to people in the Old Testament. And that's the passage we're going to look at today. So Genesis 4 is very close to the beginning of the world, which happened in Genesis 1. <laughs> and the beginning of humanity. And John did talk about the beginning time in verses that we did look at last week. In fact, let me read that for you first. So 1 John 3, 7, he said, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's what he says. So the devil actually shows up in Genesis chapter 3. He inhabits a snake. So the devil abandoned God and the devil brought other angels with him in his rebellion against God and he de deceived them into believing a lie and they chose against God and, and then he, God made the world and he made human beings and he brought that same desire to tempt humanity to fall and join him in his rebellion and they did. He deceives the world. Uh, the first couple were deceived. The devil still deceives. He has a lot of practice deceiving. So um, let's see, we live many thousands of years later, so he's been doing it a long time. He deceives the world today to believe they don't need a savior. That's one of those things he does now. He deceives church people that Jesus is a source of good feelings, but he's not a Lord to be obeyed. He's just kind of a religious high. That's what Jesus is. He deceives people that way. So then they don't care about following him. So deceiving people, we could call that the devil's gift. That's his talent. That's what he does well. So what we see in Genesis 4 is the, the, that the fall of man, which happened in chapter 3, we see it passed on to, to the posterity of the first humans, the first couple. It, it, continues on. When man fell, it was just two people, just two people, a man and his wife, glorious human beings made in the image of God. And then they trashed that by using this gift and this glory that God had given them to follow Satan and go after, away from God, leave him. So by choosing to defy God, the race fell. So everybody born to them, their whole progeny, all of mankind is in this condition of a natural separation from God. We're born that way. We're born separated from God. That's the human condition. It's common to all of us. That's why you sin. That's why you've got parts of you that want to sin. That's why that problem exists. And humans have a sinful nature. And you know what? We can't get rid of our sinful nature ourselves. We can't do that. So what's really interesting is that the second generation of humans, the children of Adam and Eve, though they were expelled from paradise, they can still 
have a relationship with God. They can still approach God. They still come to God. And the Lord is actually willing to communicate with them. So the children of Adam and Eve had a communication relationship with the living God, even though they were cast out of paradise. And we see that they come to him through offerings or sacrifices. So the story of Cain and Abel is what we're talking about. And it's always relevant. It's a very important story. It's really short, very short story. And sometimes when you have these really short stories, especially about mega events like the fall of man and things like that, there's not always a whole lot of detail. And when there's not a lot of detail, it, it, if you're just reading it, it just raises all kinds of questions. Well, what about this? Why did that happen? Why is you know, those kind of things go through your mind. Let me give you a little hint about reading the Bible. If the, if, the, if the story you're looking at is really short and doesn't give a whole lot of details, then the things you're asking about or want to know about that are not recorded there aren't the point of the story. <laughs> so those are fine questions to ask. You can speculate about them, but the point of the story is in the very details that we are given. And it might not be much, but what's given is what we're supposed to get. Does that make sense? Good. Glad I said it right. <laughs> So this very brief passage about Cain and Abel has a, a very specific focus. It's a, it's, a, it's a narrow look at something. So it starts in verse 1 of chapter 4. The man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So here you see men bringing offerings to God. Uh, you could call it a sacrifice. We know virtually nothing about the first sacrifices that were made. Or That's where the questions start coming in. Did God command sacrifices? We don't know. doesn't say that he did. Was it supposed to be a blood sacrifice? Was every offering to God supposed to be um, an animal? It, the Bible doesn't say that. Was it done at certain times? Like there's there a specific season or formality to when these sacrifices. It doesn't say anything about that. There's all kinds of questions that come to mind. We do know that it was brought to the Lord. Okay, that's what we know. We know that Abel raised livestock and brought animals. And Cain was a farmer and brought the fruit of his labors, the, the grain or whatever the seeds were or anything like that. Now, you know, in the law of Moses, there's blood offerings and grain offerings. You can bring both kinds. So, um, they both seem appropriate as, as far as what they have to give. We don't know that for sure. Maybe God commanded blood sacrifices. But Cain's sacrifice is rejected. Now, is it because he brought products of the soil and not blood? Is that why it was rejected? Well, it doesn't say that. Many people think so. That's a, a conclusion you can draw, I think, from the totality of Scripture. But the text doesn't say that. In fact, I think the text is suggesting it's more about the men themselves. And I think as we move forward, we're going to see that that's exactly what it was. So in verse 4, it says, The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And then in verse 5, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And I think you can even see from the language there that the men themselves have sort of the priority. So it's Abel and his offering and Cain and his offering. 
So Abel offered the firstlings, that would be the newborns of his animals, and, and that was an important thing to do in the law of Moses much, much later. Um, when you give God your firstlings, you're saying, I trust you with the, f the rest of my flocks that they're going to be fruitful. I'm giving you the very first. I'm not, going to I'm not going to hog it. I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to trust that you're going to bless. And that's So there's faith involved in that kind of a, an offering like that. So, um, and the fat portions, it mentions that too. That shows sort of the best, the choicest parts. So um, you get a hint of his heart there. He's more than happy to trust God and give him the best portions of that. The New Testament book of Hebrews talks about Abel. You remember that's, that's the, all the heroes of the faith. It's kind of a long list of them. And Abel shows up right away in that, of course, because he's really early. Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, Though he is dead, he still speaks. So because of what he did or his heart attitude, it still speaks to us today. That's what that text is saying. It was his faith. So whatever he had been taught by his parents about God or whatever God may have communicated to them, again, we know so little about that time, but he believed it. He believed it. And it meant a lot to him. So he brought willingly, happily to honor the Lord. God approved. How did Cain react when his sacrifice was rejected. Well, verse 5 of chapter 4 says, But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard, so Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. You know what a countenance is? That's your face. And if your face falls, it doesn't mean it falls off the ground. It, it, it means it's not this anymore. It's this. Right? He was very angry. Why is he so angry? Why be angry? Was God angry with him? No. No, he wasn't angry with him. God, in fact, asks him why. Why are you angry? And God, in asking, only encourages him. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Why that face? That's how parents say it. Why that face? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Won't you be happy? Won't you have a smile on your face? So he's saying, listen, Cain, this isn't the end of anything. You can do better. Verse 7, the second part of it, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. You're a fallen creature now. Sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion standing outside your house is waiting to pounce on you. Sin is like that. It's crouching in a jumping position. You can master that, though. You can say no to that. You can say no to those desires. Whatever your anger is coming from, you can deal with that. Your countenance can be lifted. I'm more than happy to accept you if you come to me the right way. And that's actually the first use of the word sin in the Bible. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. That's still true. But God is graciously helping Cain find the right path, the narrow path we might call it. And what does Cain do when God speaks so kindly to him? Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about that when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. 
Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? So Cain ignored God's loving counsel. Hatred took hold of him. It already says that. And he murdered his brother. And he did it without guilt, without remorse. What's wrong with Cain? I mean, what's going on with him? He should have realized that anger was a danger sign. Why am, why am I angry? See, God, God asked a good question. Why are you angry? Think about that. Look at your own heart. And he didn't ask himself. He just was angry. He didn't stop to think about it. Why be angry? Abel didn't do anything to him. Abel didn't hurt him. Nothing. He didn't do anything. It's just envy and comparing. So when God did not accept Cain's sacrifice, Cain could have felt some sorrow over his own inadequacy and whatever he did wrong with regard to that, whether it was the wrong kind or the heart that he brought to it or anything like that. He could have felt bad about that. He could have talked to God about it. He could have talked to Abel about it, if you think about it, right? Mm -hmm. Abel, your sacrifice was accepted. Mine wasn't accepted. Brother, brother, could you help me? There was something wrong with my sacrifice. Would you help me better understand so that when I come again before the Lord, I can do it the right way? Help me, brother. Why not say that? Why not? Pride. The ultimate sin, the first sin, pride. Self as the highest good. So God asks the right question, why are you angry? And we see in Cain, really, the history of humanity down through time. All the murders, all the abuse, all the cruelty of humanity in every age. Blaming other people for your problems. Pride and exaltation of self. The inability to see one's own sinfulness honestly, to look at one's own heart. And rejecting God. I don't need your help. I'm going to take care of this myself, my way. The abandonment of the idea that we owe to others something good. We, we consider the well-being of other people. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't, know what, I don't know what Abel's up to. See to it yourself. I don't have any obligations there. And then the open mocking of the righteous and the good and the pure. So, now, on to 1 John. Other end of the Bible. Remember, John's topic is uh, what is an authentic Christian. That's the subject of his letter. And he's been giving these tests to help us know if a person is a real Christian, if we're a real Christian. And we saw in chapter 2, we've talked about it multiple times now, there's a threefold test. Number one was obedience to God's command. A real Christian obeys God. Two, love of the brethren. Christians love each other. And three, correct doctrine, particularly right belief about Christ, who he is and what he's accomplished for us. So now we're in chapter three and John is going to repeat those three tests with somewhat different language and somewhat different emphasis, but the same tests. And he's really wise to do that because it helps bring them home to us. So last time we talked about the righteousness test last Sunday. Righteousness is just a deeper way of looking at the obedience test. So he's bringing in the word righteousness for that. 
Now, beginning in chapter 3, verse 11, he's going to restate the love test. And he gets really practical about that. But he starts with, guess who? Cain and Abel. Yeah, that's why we were there. Chapter 4. The first sons of Adam and Eve. So look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Now, just before this, John laid down a really sharp distinction between those who practice righteousness and those who practice sin. So, like, if you back up to verse 7, it says, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. So let me pick it up again. We're going to just read verse 11 again. Um, this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's the key phrase here. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? That's, that's the big question. Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then he says, do not be surprised if the world hates you. So now, backing up from there, back up to verse 7, there, John had drawn a really sharp distinction between those who practice righteousness and those who practice sin. That's what you were talking about. So, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, he says, for the devil sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. To do what? To destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now last week we talked about that. We're talking about not ever sinning because every Christian sins, but a pattern, a life, a, a dedication to sin is what he's talking about. This practice, that's why he uses the phrase in verse 8, practices sin. Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So that's kind of where we ended last week, and where he says not love his brother, that, that leads into this second test of the love test. So there's a sharp contrast he made between the righteous and the sinful, the one who practices righteousness, the one who practices sin. He just doesn't show any middle ground there. So children of God and children of the devil, practices righteousness, practices sin. So being a child of the devil doesn't necessarily mean you're a devil worshiper. Like you're not consciously worshiping the devil. It means you have totally bought into his deception like Adam and Eve did. You're following him. You're believing him. You're taking his lies and you're making his lies your truth. That's what, that's what it's talking about there. So you can see how in verse 10, John moved from the righteousness test to the topic of love. And that's the love test, okay? So what he does is maintain this sharp distinction about love and righteousness by using Cain and Abel as early examples, the child of God and the child of the devil. You can see it right there at the beginning of all things. One brother practices righteousness, the other brother practices sin. So back in, um, in verse 8, John says that the one who practices sin is of the devil. 
So that's the person that have given themselves over to sin. That sin is their thing. That's what they're going to do. Sin is what I do. You know, that's that person. So he's on the devil's team, whether he knows he is or he doesn't know it. He doesn't matter. Most people don't know it. They just are. They're just going through life doing their thing. But their thing is his thing because his thing is to deceive them into doing their thing. Does that make sense? <laughs> so um, Cain, too, we saw it in verse 12 uh, right here. He's of the evil one in the same way that the one that practices sin is of the evil one. So Cain is that too. In other words, Cain was a devoted sinner. He was committed to a sinful lifestyle, believing the devil's lies. It's not that he was a monster or a fiend yet, but he didn't worship God. He didn't love God. He wasn't doing things for God. He was of the evil one. Dedicated sinner. And that's really important because killing his brother was not like his sudden foray into wickedness. All of a sudden, I'm a killer. It, he already was a sinner. He was already devoted to sin. He thought sinfully. That's why he got angry when God didn't accept his sacrifice. Because he wasn't, like I said, he could have appealed and said, oh, help me, help me do better. And God would have helped him. And Abel would have helped him. Adam and Eve would have helped him. So he's got an, an attitude of rebellion against God. And because he didn't look right and he was full of pride, he gets, gets angry when, when he's corrected. So he killed Abel because his deeds were evil, verse 12 says. That is what characterized his offering to the Lord. I really don't think it had anything to do with it being grain or fruit or whatever it was. It wasn't given in humility. It wasn't given in love for God. It wasn't given to honor God. So his anger, when corrected, just reveals that corrupt heart that he had. So Cain had other motives for the sacrifice. Well, what motives could he have? other than pleasing God or coming to God. Well, people have all kinds of motives for the religious things they do. They're trying to earn favors. Maybe, maybe he wanted to please mom. You know, mom's always pushing me to do the sacrifice thing and the give God his due thing, so I'm going to do it. And then, and then God doesn't accept it. And he gets really angry. Why is he getting angry? Because he didn't do it. He may have done it for Eve and not for the Lord. You know what I'm saying? That kind of thing. It's our family thing. That's what our family does. So I'm going to bring the sacrifice. It could have been something different than that altogether. It could have been, you know, pagan civilization kind of came from Cain. We're going to, if you read through Genesis, it moves in that direction. His descendants kind of create civilization, pagan civilization. Well, how do pagans, why do they offer sacrifices? To get good fortune or blessings or to have the world kind of go their way. Could have been that. That could have been his motive, not for God, but to make his life better. That might have been it. We don't know. It doesn't say. But whatever it is, his motives were wrong, so God doesn't accept his sacrifice or his offering in this case. And that's why there's no humility, no acceptance of correction, even from God himself, who speaks to Cain with such grace and such gentleness. Now Abel, his deeds were righteous. He honored God. That's what was in his heart. And Cain hated that he did that. Cain hated him for that. And that's, John says, that's why the world often hates us. So verse 13 uh, gives us a pretty important insight here. This hatred of people who are faithful to the Lord in heart and life, this, the, the righteous, that hatred is like Cain's. So our culture hates us for that. Not everybody, of course. A lot of people are just neutral. They think it's fine. You're a Christian. That's fine. But there's a cultural hatred of Christianity. You see it on network television shows. How many people have seen a network TV show 
or a major film where Christians were portrayed in a positive, wonderful <laughs> way. You're laughing because you've never seen it. It's been a long time. It's funny, I've been on a Twilight Zone marathon recently, just watching the Twilight Zone from the 50s, early 60s. And God is honored in so many ways through that show. He's never put down, ever. It's just interesting, culturally speaking. So here's Rod Serling, who was a secular person. I don't think he was very deeply religious at all. But he's, he honors God in his writing because that's, what, that's where the culture was. But today it's exactly the opposite. It's a, it's a mockery. And, and Christians are always portrayed as incredibly insane people, right? It's like, well, who's that? I don't even recognize that person. But um, that's why. That's why. It's because their deeds are evil and they're of the evil one. The world is. So... Cain hated Abel because he was righteous. So we shouldn't be surprised. That's what he say. Don't be surprised about that stuff, you know. Culture is against us now. Now, it better be for righteousness. You'd better be hated for righteousness sake. Because there are jerks that are Christians, right? Christian jerks. <laughs> and if you act like a jerk and the world hates you, that's your problem. I mean, you're putting that on God. You're making God look bad. If you're acting like a fool or a, a careless, angry person or something. So if unbelievers turn against Christ because you're a fool or you're acting like a jerk, then don't boast about that. And jerks do boast about that. Well, they, they hate me because I'm faithful to the Lord. Those stupid people and all that kind of stuff. But a Christian, what is a Christian? What should the world see in us? Yeah, Christ-likeness, right? They should see wisdom, compassion, gentleness. We should adorn the truth with kindness. That's who they should see. That's what they should see in us. The angry Christian is really not following the Lord right. So we come to verse 14, which is a simple and beautifully worded pronouncement of the love test. This is a great, John, so John-like, it's so simple, simple words. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. That's a, that's a beautifully stated description of salvation, passing from death to life. And of course, John got those words directly from Jesus himself which he records in, G in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Those are Jesus' words. So John's using those words here. So salvation is nothing less than a spiritually dead person being brought to life by God, by the power of God. It's that dramatic. It's that big of a change. So part of that is simply being, of course, declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus that takes away your sin. That's called justification in the Bible. You're declared righteous. We've talked a lot about that at different times. But there's much more to it than that. There's this profound change that we call the new birth. And John calls it in 1 John being born of him, being born of God. That's the new birth. And the new birth begins working this Christ-likeness in us. So all the Christian virtues, especially faith, hope, and love, are come along with that new birth. Think 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, where we read it earlier today, and Paul says the greatest of these is love. 
love. Love, right. Yeah, there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest one is love. Those are the final words of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now, now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. There's, if there's no love, there's no spiritual life. There's no new life. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. Because the life of God in us produces love. That word abide, now faith, hope, and love abide these three. We've talked about abide a lot in 1 John, especially the first half of 1 John. That's the same word found in 1 John 3, 14, where it says, he who does not love abides in death. So abides means to continue or to remain in. Um, the NIV uses remains, remains in death, because that's where you were. You started that way. Why? Because man fell and we're born in sin. We're born spiritually dead. You, that's why Jesus said you have to be born again. Because you're born once, you're a natural man, you're a, a lost person. Your nature is fallen. We start life spiritually dead. And if you're not born again, you remain spiritually dead. That's why you have to have, to have the new birth. So, the one true mark of the new birth is, well, there's several marks. We've talked about righteousness. And the second one is, you love God's family. Love is a fruit of the new birth. Love is the fruit of salvation. Now, is a Christian only supposed to love God's family? No. <laughs> In fact, a Christian is supposed to love everyone without exception. It's a unique and glorious feature of Jesus' teaching. Nobody ever said it before he did that we should love our enemies. That's his doctrine. Love your enemies. He gave practical instruction on how to do that. And it's hard. Who finds it really easy to love their enemies? Because I want to sit under your feet. I want to study you. Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Here's how. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. So we're commanded by our Lord to love everybody. And yet, there's a particular love we are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. A special love. We have a higher obligation to them, to our fellow saints, if you will. You know that saying, blood is thicker than water? Well, I, I guess it actually is thicker than water. But spirit is thicker than anything, than both, than blood or water. And you can see that special sort of spiritual love in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul talks about not losing you know, your steam and doing good works like keep going. And he says in Galatians 6, 9, he says, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. But he doesn't stop there. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. So do good to everyone, but especially your brothers and sisters in Christ especially to the household of faith. That's how God ends the book of Galatians. That's the very end of, the, of that letter. That's the last thing he wants ringing in your ears when you're reading that letter out loud. Especially to the household of faith. Do good to them. Do good to all, but especially to the household of faith. So some regard the household of faith as just this place you come to on Sundays, one of many activities that you have. You kind of check it off your spiritual list and then you go on. But that's not his take on it at all. Do good to the household of faith. 
love the brethren. So I, I hope we can kind of capture that vision that scripture gives us with regard to our bond in Christ and in, in the church and in, in God's family. And I'll tell you, I've been a lot of places in the world and some pretty far flung ones too. And the bond that exists between born again men and women, no matter how weird their, our cultures differ, it's just instantaneous, it's complete, it's glorious, it's, it's just there, this love, you know, this bond we have. And that's why we can meet brothers from Africa or brothers from India, and it's just there, the bond of love. It's, it's part of what the Holy Spirit, we share the same Holy Spirit. He lives in them, he lives in me, and we share that, and he brings forth this love for one another. It's a deep spiritual connection because the same Spirit is there. Now, this idea of loving our brethren comes from Jesus, right? So at the Last Supper, I'm sure you remember some of these sayings, just before the crucifixion, hours before the crucifixion, John was leaning on Jesus' breast during that supper and he heard Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. That's the clearest command Jesus could give us. And he states one great practical result of this love. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now if you walk into a church that's full of rancor and the people in the Bible study hate the people in the choir and the whatever, the, you know, this family is not family and they're trying to take over the church from each other and rule this and that and you see all that kind of, and that happens. But when you see that, do people come in and say, ah, Jesus is glorious. He's so wonderful. No, that's not what happens. It would be great if unbelievers saw the way we love each other and just say, there's something really special about these people. I gotta find out what it is. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And it's interesting because it's, Jesus doesn't say it's your love for them, and you should love them, but it, he doesn't say that that's what's gonna mark you, know, you as a disciple of Christ. That's how they're gonna know. It's, it's our love for each other. That's how we're gonna know. And some Christians aren't very good at it. In fact, theologically strong Christians are some of the worst people sometimes because they're so into the right doctrine. I mean, every little detail. And if you're not on our team, then you're bad. And they start mocking you and saying all kinds of evil things against you and stuff like that. I, that, I see that all the time. It's pretty awful. So our goal and our purpose as believers in Christ includes loving the brethren. That's just an essential part of it. So what does that look like? What does that mean? We recently, a couple sermons ago, I think, I defined love as wanting the best for the one you love. I didn't make that up. That's, Christians have thought that way a long time. That's kind of what love is. It's wanting what's best for the other person. Thomas Watson, a famous Puritan, he said, love is a sweet and gracious affection whereby we wish the good of another and promote his welfare as our own. That's what love is. As Charlie Brown would say, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Promoting another's welfare as we would our own. What is best for that person? That's what I'm seeking. A punch in the mouth. That's what's best for that. No. What's best for that? Actually, it could involve 
some hard discussions, couldn't it? And telling truth in difficult situations, it could involve that. But probably not a wrap in the mouth. So determine what is best biblically. Define it biblically. What's best for that person? And pursue that. Do that with each other. That's what we're called to do. Even loving your enemies, as we already saw, is not just refraining from harming them. It's being a blessing to them. Do good to them. Do good to those who hate you. That is so contrary to human nature and the way people act. And it's hard. It's hard for us too. But we see it all through scripture. All through scripture. This uh, special love, not only for our enemies, but this special love for the brethren, one another. You know, when I was... Um, in college, I would spend my Saturday afternoons, every Saturday afternoon, and then when I met Laura, she came in and spent after Saturday afternoons with me, doing Bible studies at some of Los Angeles County's finest juvenile detention facilities. <laughs> That's the way I should say it. And I loved doing it. I did it for five years, every Saturday. And I would tell the young men there, who in some ways, honestly, these guys were real crooks and villains and stuff and gang members and stuff, but they were kind of like children. I mean, in the way they're Thinking was, it really, it, you almost sort of felt like you were talking to an eight-year-old or something, even if they were 16 or 15 or something. But, um, but I would tell them, I would say, what does the state of California want you to do? And they would pretty much say something like, they want me to stop being a criminal or a gang member or a violent or something. They want me to stop hurting people or taking things or whatever. That's all the state really cares about. And I would say, that's right. That's what they want for you. They want you to stop doing certain things that are antisocial or hurt other people and all of that. What does God want you to do? And most of these guys were interested in Christ and some of them were Christians. So, so you know, we would talk about that. The state wants this. You become a law-abiding citizen. What does God want for you? He wants much more from you than to stop stealing. Much more. And we actually have texts that I would take them to Ephesians chapter 4 and we'd have one of them read verse 28 says he who steals must steal no longer so he's writing to a church right but rather so there now there's the more this is different instead of doing that he must labor performing with his own hands what is good he's not done yet so that he will have something to share with those who have need. Not only should you stop stealing and just live for yourself, you should get a job and you should work and you should earn money so you can help people that have need. That's very different than just being a good boy <laughs> and stop, stop doing crimes. It's great to refrain from destroying people. Sure, that's good, but it's great to not abuse somebody. It's great to not hurt somebody. It's great to not curse at somebody. Hey, you stop. That's great. But that's not all that God wants. Love says, don't just stop tearing people down. Love builds people up. Love edifies. That's a biblical word. Edify. Build, make a building. Build people up. Your words should be an instrument of grace, right? And that doesn't mean it has to be sugar-sweet compliments all the time because there are hard conversations, difficult conversations that have to happen sometimes. But what will be the purpose of those hard conversations? To build somebody up, to edify them, to help them find the right path. That's the purpose of those things. You see a pattern here? Love blesses other people. So love is concerned about and acts for the good of others even our enemies, but especially for our church brothers and sisters, the household of faith.
So one way to measure your love is how focused are you on, the, on blessing other people, on encouraging them, on blessing their life in some way, being, doing good to them. Okay, well, we're up to verse 14 now. Um, John has a lot more to say with really simple words. It's great. Now, I know we call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. Everybody calls it the love chapter. But I actually think 1 John 11 through 18 is, is also deserves the title of the love chapter because it's so wonderful. He just uses really simple language. It's not as eloquent as Paul, but it's deep and profound. Now, I have to say this. It does happen that there are believers who can't seem to love certain brothers or sisters in the flock. They can't do it. They have a really hard time doing it. That is a great failure. It's a tragedy. It's the opposite of how people are going to see Christ in us. Can't happen. Here we're supposed to do good to our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us, and we can't so much as offer a genuine smile to people that are in the same church, because we don't like them. They did this to me. Well, if you don't like them, that means you have an extra challenge to love them well. That's what it means. Okay, I don't like them. How can I love this person well? How can I do it? That's what you should challenge yourself with. I, I bless them. How can I bless them? How can I edify them? How can I do good to them? That's exactly what Jesus would have you do. To do good to them. How, you, how am I going to do that? Withholding tender regard is not love at all. And you might not like the word, but that's actually hate. That's hate. And verse 15, John is going to offer another contrast here as is his pattern. If you want to talk about love, you've got to talk about hate. So that's what he's going to do. And hate has no place in the household of God. It has no place. It has to be banished. And each of us has a responsibility to banish it from ourselves. <coughs> but since Satan is a master deceiver, he can lure people into hating other people. And hate creeps into the household of God sometimes. And we need to recognize it. And we need to deal with it. And so next week we're going to look at how that can happen. <laughs> and how to counter it. Okay? Because that's the key thing. We'll do that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We just pray for our brother Jim. We'd ask that you would uh, make sure that he's okay, Father, and bless him and uh, get his health back up to speed. We thank you for the men that came here to take care of him so quickly. And for those, those in our congregation that were so quick to take care of him, Father, people that have a lot of experience with those things. But Father, our focus on the word this morning is about our love. And we ask you to help us to love one another. It's not easy because we have things in us that are a touch of what was in Cain, the pride, self-exaltation, the bruised feelings because somebody else did something well and we were rejected for something or whatever it is. But we ask you to help us through those times, Lord, to give us a, an abounding love that only comes from the Holy Spirit and the new birth that we have that can overflow to others where we put self beneath and lift up other people. That, if we all did that for each other, Father, we'd be in a really good place. So we ask for you to help us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.